Welcome to season two of COVID-19 Public Health Policy and Culture. In these episodes, we share international stories about the pandemic around the world, what it looks like in everyday lives, as well as what it looks like from the eyes of researchers and professionals who work on controlling the pandemic. This podcast is designed for information to be translatable from epidemiologists, emergency medical professionals, and those who do work on the front lines and what it looks like in everyday family culture on planet Earth during this historic moment. I am here to tell you about the Public Health Podcast Network. Are you part of the public health workforce? Is public health podcasting something that you enjoy doing? The Public Health Podcast Network is a community of individuals who are working in the space of public health. We have a directory that's currently up on our site of community, global, and environmental health podcasts that you can access right now. And also, if you want to become a member, you will have access to getting your site, your podcast on the directory. You would also have access to our networking events with podcasters and professionals in the public health space. If you're interested in learning more about public health, we also provide that service and that opportunity as well for you to learn more about how to get involved in public health, get your master's of public health, your DRPH or your PhD in the field even. So to learn more, reach out to us at publichealthpodcasters.com. So you probably are aware by now that we use anchor.fm here on this podcast for COVID-19 PPC. And I wanted to tell you about anchor.fm because this is actually the second uh, podcast hosting software I've used. And um, I really like it. I love how easy it is to use. I love the fact that it's free. And they have so many tools here like music and all these different options that help you record and edit your podcast either from your phone or your PC or your computer. And then Anchor distributes your podcast for you so that it can be on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and many more places. And then also you can even make money from your podcast with minimum, with no minimum listenership. And it's all you need to make a podcast in one place. So if you're new to podcasting and you're interested in um, getting started, I recommend Anchor.fm. So what you can do is download the free Anchor app or go to Anchor.fm to get started. Um, that's my recommendation. And, um, you know, after almost a year of podcasting, I'm really glad I found Anchor just recently. It just makes things so much easier. And uh, yeah, come check out anchor.fm. Welcome to this episode of COVID-19 Public Health Policy and Culture. Hope you're doing well. For the month of August, we did take a slight break. There was so much going on and also wanted to take some rest. Also put a rest for my, um, placed a rest for my nonprofit organization as well, the Autoimmune Community Institute. And um, all the volunteers were um, encouraged to take some time off because they worked so hard throughout the year as volunteers for the nonprofit, but also with this podcast and other things, just getting that rest is so helpful and so nice as we are just building all these different opportunities and businesses and nonprofits. And they are just in the, still in the seed state. They're very much in this, uh, small business, um, seed stage. 
And getting that rest is very important for us. And during the month of August, I did get my third booster. The, I mean, my third vaccine shot and it was my booster and it was really rough. I uh, was down for about a week because of that uh, third vaccine. Uh, the first one was not a big deal. It was Pfizer nothing really happened to me. The second one, I remember just that evening having aches and pains and chills. But this third vaccine, the, the booster was really rough. And it had been, let's say like about four months since my second vaccine, my second dose. And because of my autoimmune condition, I went online and searched to see if uh, this was recommended uh, by my disease community. And it was suggested to get the booster. And so I went ahead and got it as soon as it was available, but it was really rough. And I'm not completely convinced that it was time yet for me to get it because of how it was just more of a difficult uh, issue uh, health-wise than the second dose. And so I don't know, um, maybe a little bit more time in between those doses could have been helpful, but you know, this is just my own personal um opinion and speculation about what was going on because yeah it was just this much worse side effect of several days of aches pains and chills versus just like that one evening with a second dose so yeah if you are looking into getting the um, booster it's definitely a, a concern not a concern but it's definitely an option it's definitely out there and i know that they are working on currently getting it approved for everybody to have that booster and I think they're still uh, searching through the evidence, searching through the research to determine exactly what that time lapse, that gap of time should be between the second dose and that third, the booster. And I think that is something to still continue uh, researching and investigating because I do suspect that maybe I had, um, whether or not the antibodies were present, I haven't even tested for that, but, um, yeah, I think maybe there could be a little bit more of a gap um, based on what I was experiencing. Uh, anyways, so today we're talking about policy patchwork. And this is a really interesting topic as we are still moving into the COVID response. We're still dealing through the, not even aftermath, we're still in kind of in the middle of this Delta variant. We're hearing about other variants like Mu. And yeah, so they're all in, um, Greek alphabets. Um, yeah, the fraternity alphabets. <laughs> uh, anyways, and so we are currently in the middle still of Delta, but it looks like we're looking at some of the other variants of concern, which we'll talk about later on in the future. But today we're talking about policy patchwork. And so the difference between a policy and a guideline is something I want to bring up first. And it's uh, common to hear this um, confusion between the two. And I actually had a really hard time understanding what a policy was just from the very beginning when I was doing my master's of public administration degree. And I took my first public policy class. I remember just struggling with the concept of policy. Uh, you know, is it supposed to be like a legislative concept only? Is it supposed to only affect like you know, um, you know, something up in Capitol Hill? Or is it supposed to be something in Sacramento? Um, is that public policy only and nothing else? Or is it as simple as like, 
you know, you go to the grocery store and they won't return your, your money after what, 30 days without a receipt, something like that. So what exactly is a policy? Is it as simple as something like that, where you go to the grocery store and make, they make a decision for and against, you know, some, maybe some complaint you may have or some request you may have modification, or is it, and then, or is it only limited to like government level legislative, you know, um, policy, almost like law, right? So, I mean, yeah, guideline versus policy versus law even could be another level of conversation. But today I do wanna talk about guideline because we do hear about it so much like with the CDC and the World Health Organization and then you know your local and city and your state level public health agencies as they talk about these different guidelines. Um, so for the most part, they are recommendations. And unfortunately, recommendations are not the same as policy because policy has more of a um, carrot and stick sort of uh, consequence where there's actually more enforcement. There are more requirements than guidelines. So guidelines are more suggestive and they're more passive, which is something we really should not even be dealing with in a pandemic as it relates to how we're going to prevent the spread of a disease. However, um, guideline is the word that we hear so often, right? The CDC guidelines. So for example, let me do a quick search here, CDC guidelines for COVID, right? What you'll find is that they say, you know, stay home for 14 days after you know that you've contact, if you've been in contact with someone with COVID, um, check for a fever, um, stay away from people, who are at higher risk of getting sick if you uh, may have been, you know, in, in, in need of quarantine. So that's what the guideline is. So we're even having guidelines for quarantine and isolation. So that's something that's kind of of concern to me. Is the word guideline something that we should be doing here? This should be more of a um, policy in terms of how we're going to interact as citizens in this country or in this geographic region, or even just as world citizens, how are we going to respond to the pandemic and pre preventing the spread, right? And the, the biggest concern of all, I think what has made COVID most insidious is the fact that there is what we've seen, and it can vary based on variant, but we saw initially that there was this 14 day waiting period, this incubation period. I don't know where 72 hours came about, because we knew in the past that it was 14 days. So I'm not quite sure in terms of guidelines and maybe some in some places policy, we'll, we'll discuss that soon in a second, where the 72 hour window came about. Because what if yesterday someone went and exposed themselves to COVID and then like two days before that they got tested and they were negative, now they can go and into a sports event or be out in a plane and whatever with or without a mask, you, you know, if they're vaccinated, they can go in without a mask, have been, been exposed. And we've seen this increase of breakthrough cases and hospitalizations. Anyways, there's a lot going on and there's a lot of concern. So I think, yeah, with that gap of time in August, I feel like there's so much more to discuss now as it relates to, you know, these changes over time as we had to grapple with the, the variant. But um, anyways, the 14 days is this, um, I guess it's a guideline. And the thing is, yeah, what makes it so insidious is the um, asymptomatic and also the 
incubation period. Those two things have made COVID so difficult for us to navigate and get control of. And there have been times, and you can hear this throughout the podcast, where at the very beginning, first phase, they thought people thought that we had it under control. Um, in certain parts of Europe, Asia, they're like, we've got this under control. We're, we're post-COVID now. I think we're going to be reopening and everything's going to be okay. And that has not been the case. People are looking into like third, fourth phases now of closing and reopening. And unfortunately, it's the same game. And how do we you know, set it up where we can close and then reopen and not have to worry about the pandemic anymore. So that's the, that's the big question. And it is, and there are answers to that. And, um, you know, I'd love to, most likely I'll interview people from uh, countries that have done such a great job of controlling it. Um, once again, like New Zealand and so on, I, I may seek out another uh, interview with people just to hear what things have been like over time, now that we're approaching year three, uh, which is concerning, you know, it's September now, I guess it's too soon to say year three, but definitely getting through the second year with very little um, progress in terms of returning. I know that um, certain schools are currently returning. And so um, wanting to talk about that next, but um, ending this, uh, section here, we talk, we talk about the difference between guideline and policy. And again, guidelines are kind of like suggestions and um, recommendations. And then policies have more of a required uh, component to them, uh, where like, if you don't follow through with this, then this is, the, you cannot um, proceed with something, right? So that would be the difference between a guideline and a policy. And again, unfortunately, if we're, we're looking at our uh, leaders in public health at a global and national and even statewide and countywide scale, we are seeing more guideline versus policy in place. And that makes it really difficult to control the pandemic because people, um, they know they are familiar, familiar with what is necessary and what is best, but it is not required. And so, yeah, it just makes things difficult, okay? Whether they're vaccinated or not, asymptomatic or not, um, even whether they need to quarantine, that's like under, under um, suggestion almost, it's under guideline. So that's kind of, you know, somewhat distressing. Um, so let's go into the schools now. So it's September now, and a lot of the school, schools are reopening, um, calling things a safe return to campus, um, actually leads me to another topic I need to talk about today, which is hotels and the travel industry. Um, Returning to campus, a lot of schools are saying that they are, um, as a policy, requiring proof of vaccination. And my question has been, I've been asking students and asking around, how are they verifying that people are vaccinated? And for the most part, I'm not getting a clear answer. I'm hearing, for example, that if you go in to a student services appointment, okay, not if you go to class, so the teachers are not necessarily requiring people to show a card or anything like that. It has more to do like if you're going to go into an administrative building specifically for a healthcare appointment or a student services counseling appointment, then uh, they may ask you for that verification of vaccination or 
negative COVID test. Um, this one here says within the prior seven days. This is San Diego Community College District. So um, yeah, you can have got had a negative test seven days in advance, and then that would be okay. So yeah, there's still a lot of gray area in terms of how this is being um, implemented and how these policies are going to protect students. I think that this is definitely a step in the right direction. And I think that a lot of um, students, you, you will likely see a reduction, of course, of the spread and the incidence of cases on campus. But, you know, there are certain things that there's no science that shows me that it's almost like these 72 hours and these seven day um, vaccine periods of time are arbitrary. And I would have to go in and, you know, I actually like being wrong, okay? Um, I like learning. Um, why is it a 72 hour COVID uh, requirement? I need to find out a little bit more about that time frame. And there's probably some research out there. I'd have to look for that. But why seven days now in the San Diego Community College District? Um, another thing that's going on here, let's see here, the University of California system, they are looking at uh, similar uh, guidelines in terms of vaccinations and um, those requirements. But what I'm seeing here is that it is, um, they recently approved a policy that requires all students, faculty and staff to be vaccinated by September 6th, okay? Um, and is that first or second dose, right? Is that complete vaccination? Not fully stated. Um, we're looking at um, UCSD and um, there are some medical exemptions, okay? And then, and I think, you know, medical exemptions are definitely fair because we do have some unique health conditions that are out there, but the, the goal is the herd immunity. And I don't even know if we've ever seen what that looks like in this country um, in terms of COVID yet. Yeah, so herd immunity would not require a 100% vaccination rate and people with rare diseases and very severe um, reactions to the vaccine uh, would definitely still be protected and it would still be enough where we would be protected from them um, if we were to reach a herd immunity status. And uh, that calculation has actually not quite been determined yet either in terms of epidemiology. What is the rate of herd immunity for COVID? And I think it's gonna depend on the type of population, um, the geographic region and the rate of spread in a location and the type of strain. Um, what is the rate of herd immunity for COVID? Not quite sure. I'm still doing a search for it, but I'm not finding it yet. And I've heard anywhere from like 70%, 75%. But um, I do be believe it's gonna vary in terms of the severity of the strain and the, the R0. Um, yeah, I know it's supposed to be R0, but it sounds weird because it's not a, a American way to call it a zero. Yeah, I'm not seeing any, any actual clear percentages in terms of goal for what herd immunity should look like. So anyways, we still have a lot of questions out there, even though we are 
completing our second year with this pandemic. And um, another thing I wanted to talk about is hotels. Um, yeah, I guess in, in terms of ending that section, we talk about education and I'm not finding um, a clear process in terms of every student being able to verify their uh, vaccination status. I think it has to do on a case-by-case uh, -case basis where if a student is gonna go in and seek counseling, and I think at a community college level, that's bound to happen very frequently. You do have to often see a counselor to set up and approve your coursework. Uh, so I can see that happening more effectively than at a uh, larger university where you sign up and enroll online. I'm not seeing or I'm not hearing yet. And I think it's just too new um, where students are uh, completely able to have to verify any sort of COVID or uh, testing or vaccination status yet. Um, I have not heard a thing about it being required to step into a classroom. I've heard about it now in terms of just getting administrative services, counseling and healthcare services on campus. Um, so that's all I can talk about in terms of what I've seen at the education level. So next I wanna talk about hotels. Okay, so first of all, we do know that COVID is airborne. Okay, we, we do know that as a fact that it is spread through droplets in the air, through aerosol. And what I'm seeing at a lot of hotels, let's say like if I were to go to the Hilton uh, hotel chain and um, see what their um, COVID um, protocol is, right? Um, COVID protocol. And I think a lot of hotels are trying to do their best. You know, they talk a lot about, um, you know, here at Hilton Clean Stay, we've partnered with the makers of Lysol and Detol to develop the new Hilton Clean Stay program, right? So here, learn more, right? So here, this is what they do. They let you have travel flexibility. Um, they, they require face coverings in public areas. Um, what else? I'm not seeing a whole much else. Uh, Hilton Clean Stay, learn more. Um, here we go. So they clean all the surfaces, right? So they talk about how they, um, yeah, so they disinfect all the surfaces in the guest room, okay, right? Um, they have hand sanitizer and disinfecting wipes available, right? Um, but food is like prepackaged, contactless, okay? Um, I don't see anything about air quality. I don't see anything about air filtration. I don't see anything about HVAC, nothing in terms of the fact that we know that this is airborne and aerosol based, okay? So, I mean, yeah, Lysol, we can spray that in the air, right? But um, in terms of air filtration, if you're looking at a shared uh, central air room for hotels, um, there's no verification at all in this document on their process of how they protect airborne um, contamination. Okay, they, they're talking about biodegradable dishware. Um, they talk about spacing of tables and chairs, which is great, which is helpful, right? But there's nothing in terms of central air distribution and those closed windows, you know, in those high rises. Um, 
they don't always allow you to open those windows. You know, if you've been to Vegas, Caesar's Palace and so on, you're on the 30th floor, you can't open those windows. So let's take a look at Caesar's Palace, right? Um, and what their policy is for COVID. I just want someone to tell me they use HVAC, okay? HVAC filtration. Um, in terms of not HVAC, but what is it called? HIPAA, uh, HIPAA. <laughs> oh my gosh. Okay. Anyways, you know, I'm doing the acronym search in my brain, but I'm looking for the specific filtration, um, HIPAA, not HIPAA, it's HEPA, H-E-P-A filtration, right? Which is going to be the way that we know what um, they're doing to protect us from airborne contamination and spread of COVID. And so let's see here, Caesar's Entertainment, health and safety protocols. Okay, here we go, health and safety protocols. Um, cleaning and disinfecting, great, right? They use PPE, great. They clean and disinfect surfaces, right? Throughout each shift, uh, social distancing, great. Oh, they talk about the casino. So we're looking at Caesar's as a whole chain, um, hand washing and sanitizing, right? But I am, again, Hotels, front desks are arranged for social distancing. Great, hand sanitizer, right? There is nothing here in terms of filtration of the air. Nothing, okay? So we have a problem. How do they address the fact that COVID is airborne? Okay, so that's the next policy patchwork um, concern that I have. The next one is going to be about business. Now, today's article that I saw on... Um, Huffington Post answers a lot of the questions about, for example, um, going to all the restaurants in the, the neighborhood, um, looking at their window right now. They're hiring for all shifts, all jobs, all positions for hire, right? Um, there's a ramen place down the street and it's fairly popular. And, and I've been there once or twice, but it's very popular with families, uh, with kids. And that window has the biggest sign that says they're hiring for all positions. I mean, all positions. Um, how does that happen, right? So today's um, Huffington Post, there's a great article. It's titled, entitled, I loved being a bartender, but COVID turned my job into a nightmare I couldn't bear. So this is a, um, an article written by somebody who, yeah, he mentioned that he um, has his doc, um, PhD, he has his BA actually in history um, and maybe anthropology. He has a bachelor's degree and he um, loves his job as a bartender. He says it's fairly lucrative and fun, but he has some really good phrases, um, really good quotes in here. Um, for example, he says, you know, he basically tells us why he had to quit his job even though he loved it. Um, so he says here, um, as I weigh my options, I struggled to trace the thread of how the part-time job I took to make beer money in college landed me in this dilemma between personal and public well-being, right? So um, in terms of policy patchwork, what we're hearing here is that um, people who work in the service industry were given this extra task of becoming enforcers of COVID guideline in their businesses, right? Um, and I'm hearing this throughout various sectors where people who are managers or um, you know, in 
public facing locations, like even university education, um, stores, businesses, restaurants, they have to play the role of being the policy maker um, or the guideline maker. It's more policy because if they don't have it, they can't get the service. So it's they become the public health policy maker for their business or for their institution. And so it's, it's a concern. And in this article here, he mentions that the, the job that he walked away from in August 2021 20, had become um, almost unrecognizable. My job was one of several that had been included in a new class of worker that emerged during the pandemic. Those of us doing work seeing the deemed essential, which had somehow come to include bartenders, were now classified as frontline workers. The advent of this new class precipitated a significant transformation in how we as restaurant employees were treated and expected to function. I was no longer just a bartender. We were no longer some disarranged crew of delinquents simply trying to distribute beers and burgers. Now, as frontline workers, we arrived at work greeted with a slew of new responsibilities, expectations, and little else. Being on the frontline implied that we were somehow part of this vanguard. Uh, he talks about how, um, the new realities exacerbated by the increasingly embittered political battle over masks and social distancing guidelines. Um, he talks about, he had this new responsibility of enforcing constantly every shifting city and state mandate. Okay, so yeah, I guess mandate is more of a policy because it's more, it sounds more forceful, right? It's a, it's a demand. Um, so, that was part of his new job working for the restaurant. And I'm hearing this in other public facing industries where they had to individually um, as leaders or managers had to decide for themselves what that requirement should look like. Are we okay with people um, being indoors without a mask? Are we okay with certain numbers of people being indoors without a mask? Are we okay with whether or not someone can verify their vaccine status? And are we okay with, when, when is it okay and when is it not okay? And you will find in every industry or any institution that we are in the middle of a policy patchwork. And it is just not clear right now what the structure is in terms of how we're protecting ourselves, how organizations are protecting themselves and others and you as a patient, client, customer, uh, visitor. Um, how are they as a unified message doing that? Um, we're looking at seven day vaccination, 72 day vaccination, um, sorry, testing, 72 day testing, seven day testing, 72 hour testing. I should edit, probably edit this, but anyways, you get the point. Um, you know. City of San Diego schools have a seven day vaccination um, window. And that's fine for visiting their business, uh, their services. Um, and then other locations have a 72 hour vaccine window, um, testing window, um, testing window. So anyways, I got that all scrambled, but I hope you understand what I'm saying here. Testing um, periods of time, are varied. Um, and again, there's the third dose is still under investigation. That's out there too, as an option. 
um, yeah, you just sign a form and it's kind of a personal attestation anyways. Yeah, so COVID um, protections are pretty much in the air right now. And so that's what this episode is about, the various policy patchworks that are in place right now and how it's just so difficult for organizations to grasp uh, in a concrete way what is going on. And then, of course, at the political level or even at the um, gubernatorial level, uh, we have a recall actually um, under um, election right now, potential um, election. Um, I think it's on the 14th in California for the governor to potentially be recalled. Um, and mainly it had to do with, you know, guidelines and um, some folks not liking having guidelines. And, um, you know, so we're, we're in this situation where everything is just so in the air. And that's what this episode is about. It's all in the air um, in every way, <laughs> pretty much here with COVID um, protections. And so that's this episode of Policy Patchwork. I uh, would love to hear from you if you have any comments on um, Apple Podcasts, or you, know, you can email us, um, april at um, aprilmorenophd.com for um, you know, feedback on what you've been seeing in terms of these policy patchworks that are happening in your geographic region. And so I hope that you've enjoyed this episode and that it kind of you know, brought some clarity to what's going on out there. Um, in this patchwork of what's going on um, for policy and uh, disease control. So take care. And then for more information about us, um, I provide consulting services in um, strategic planning, um, guideline policy, and um, even how to reach out to diverse communities in terms of patient insights and um, user experience research. And you can reach me at my site is at aprilmorenoconsulting.com. And I hope you enjoyed this episode.